Welcome to the Urbani Talks podcast. I'm your host, Urbani Talks. In this podcast, I'm helping you level up your communication skills every Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. If this is your first time on the channel, be sure to stay updated for future content by hitting the subscribe button right on below. Let's get started off with Unapologetic Truths, episode 13 with Harsh Strongman. What's up? I'm Ningwal Arman. What about yourself? Doing great. Um, I wasn't expecting for us to have the episode today, but thank you for making time uh, despite some family issues. Yeah, so I did not want us to break our every second Friday upload schedule, so I decided to make time for this. Awesome. Um, You unfortunately lost your grandpa. Um, How are you holding up? I'm doing okay. My mom is also doing well. It was upsetting for a while, but my grandfather lived a long and happy life. So I don't, you know, when someone dies young, you feel sadness. And when someone dies really old, you also feel sadness, but you understand that this is just a part of life. So it doesn't feel like a catastrophe because my grandfather lived a long, happy life. So Mm -hmm. it feels bad, but it is a part of life and we just have to accept it. Absolutely. Uh, And were you and your grandpa close? Did you get a chance to know him throughout your life? We were close, yes. I did know him quite a bit. Although in the past couple of years of his life, he was not as much of him as he used to be because he had a stroke a couple of years ago. And that really changed his personality and his memory. And this was in the later years? Yeah, this was in the past couple of years. Yeah, Harsh, I mean, this just goes to show that you never know when someone's time is coming. And I saw one of your tweets in regards to that, where, you know, you got to cultivate your relationships while you have them, because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, man, you never know. You never know. You might think that, you know, for example, some people will never say, talk to their family. And they they think that we'll, we'll do the talking or whatever later. But you just never know when someone will just go. So it's good to be in touch with your family and the people you care about. You know, one thing that I noticed as I was getting older, one thing I noticed is that, and this may seem like a pretty dark insight, but I noticed a lot of people that I thought was going to live for a long time, they actually died young. Where, you know, in college, there were a few people that I knew where I'm like, oh, whoa, we're going to mature in life through together and suddenly out of the blue moon they'll die in a car accident and it's something that you can never predict where you're looking around and some people they're going to make it they're going to do very well in their lives other people surprisingly are going to go to prison not just jail but prison and some people are just going to have a very tragic death and that's one of the dark parts of life that i uh, understood at a pretty early age There is an inherent unpredictability with these things, you know, because you say you could be having a a great day, but it turns out that you live in Nagasaki and the day is here. (laughs) 
Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's just one of those things, you know, you can just make the most of the time you have and the rest you can only leave up to God. It is how it is, you know. I I I do think that a lot of people die by preventable causes. For example, most people that I know who died young died of things like alcohol poisoning or some kind of drug overdose or things like that and not of car accidents, although that does happen. See, that's something that I would understand. If someone died like that, I'd be like, okay, there were some predictable behaviors. But some of the deaths that I've witnessed, not firsthand, but I heard about from someone that I knew well, it was so just out of the blue moon that it was completely unpredictable. Uh, there was this one guy that I knew pretty well. He was traveling overseas and he was in a cab ride about to go to the airport to head back home to the US. But it just so happened that his cab driver robbed him, stabbed him, and killed him. What? That is so crazy. Yeah. And I'm like, man, like he was literally on his way to the airport and he was pretty much like two hours away from coming to the US. And then suddenly something like that happened. And it's so freaking unpredictable. So I think, I mean, what you said, have faith in God and, you know, move with courage. You don't want to move scared. Um, and some stuff are unpredictable. Yeah, that is outright unpredictable. And what do you even do to prevent that? Like if you're, unless you're willing to wear some kind of body armor 24-7, it's a risk you just have to take. Although it really sucks that some maniac just killed this guy out of the blue. I do think that this type of maniac behavior is a huge risk when it comes to, say, you know, large events like there's a concert going on. It takes like one crazy ass person to just ruin it for everyone. Mm -hmm. there, there was actually this famous concert incident that happened recently. I think it was called Astrofest where a lot of people died in a a concert. And did you hear about it? I did not, although I did remember hearing about some kind of nail bomb issue with some concert. Was it the same one? Nail bomb? I don't know. Th th there was some type of bomb which had like some, some very sharp stuff and killed a lot of people. I don't really understand how or what exactly happened. I remember seeing it on Twitter for a while. I think that was an Ariana Grande concert. Oh, I could be yeah. wrong. That one, that one, yes. Um, oh, the, was that one? Okay. The, some popular one. I think it was Ariana Grande. Yeah, but there was a recent one. I believe it was with Travis Scott, and it's called the Astro World Tragedy, Tragedy, where there were a lot of people that were involved in some sort of uh, killing. I don't know if it was due to a stampede in the concert, but from the concerts that I've been to, I know that it gets wild. So unless I really like the artist, which is rare enough for me to actually go to the concert, I can see how hectic it gets. Yeah, the concert environment, especially when you... I've seen these videos of mosh pits and, you know, there's like a million people or so, like in a small ass area. It, it looks really crowded, especially on YouTube. And if there was something like a stampede, I bet a lot of these guys would be dead. And getting into a stampede is not that difficult because it only takes like a couple of people to start it. Mm -hmm. 
And it also depends on the artist. Where have you ever heard of Lincoln Park? I have heard of Lincoln Park. Yes. See, finally, something I've heard of. <laughs> finally, I was I was gonna say, oh no, why did I even ask? <laughs> so the last concert I went to was a Lincoln Park concert, and their fan base isn't weird or anything like that. They're not over here、uh, coloring their hair and over here fighting random people. It's pretty chill. So people wanted to go there just to experience the atmosphere. And from my experience with concerts, it wasn't that hectic. But then I had other friends who went to what is it, Slipknot concerts? Have you heard of Slipknot or Corn? I have not heard of either of these. I think I've, I am, I've heard of the name Slipknot. I haven't heard their music though. Is it, it's like a death metal band or something? Yeah, it, it's one of those death metal bands. And their concerts, from the videos that I saw. Would get hectic, so I also think it depends on the artist who's throwing the concert that'll determine how hectic it gets. Hmm. I see. I see. I I do think that I at least I, I really hope that once COVID ends, people just forget about it and all of these things just resume how they were. The concerts and yeah, social all, activities. All these social things with large amounts of people because. It was an interesting thing to, you know, at least see. I haven't really been to concerts, so I don't know in person. But I would like to go, and I would at least like to check it out once or twice. And so far, no one's doing more <laughs> concerts because of COVID. So, how's the concert life in India? Is it a common thing? I don't know. To be honest, I just don't know. I've never looked into it. I've never actually been to a concert. And I have not. It's just something I don't care about, so I have zero idea whether they actually have concerts in India or not. It's likely they do. It's likely. The few Indian musicians that I listen to, I could picture them having a concert, but it'd be the very chill one, where I listen to this famous singer.、Um, I don't know if he's fully Indian or if he's something else.、Uh, Adnan Sami. Have you ever heard of him? Nope. Let me see. Yeah, it says Indian singer on Wikipedia, but I remember he used to be really fat. And if you Google him, you'll see it.、Uh, and that's who I used to know him as as a kid, like the fat guy with the radiant voice.、Mm. And that was his shtick, where you would not be able to predict this guy has that amazing of a voice. And throughout the years,、uh, he lost a lot of weight, so I can't even recognize him anymore. But I wonder what kind of music his concert will generate. I think it'll be a very chill vibe. I don't know. I I don't know. I don't know the guy at all. Never even heard his name, so I can't <laughs> tell. You know, it's interesting. I've noticed that a lot of these singers who sing really well tend to be fat. I was looking into it. Why are opera singers fat? And it turns out that being fat kind of helps your voice have more resonance. Did you know that? I didn't know that. So, have you heard this phrase? It's not over until the fat lady sings. Yes. So I've heard of that. I think it has something to. So I I don't remember exactly. I remember reading about it in a book. And the origin of the phrase is that when some kind of competition ends, this fat opera lady will come and sing. And the 
the phrase basically means is that you don't stop paying attention until you've already won. So don't celebrate your victories prematurely. So I, I, I looked it up and it turns out that if an opera singer loses weight, their singing performance declines because their body has less resonance. Their bo- there's not enough space for the voice to bounce around in their body. So it doesn't sound as great. I never knew this before. Yeah, so I, I was speaking. So I have like a voice coach. I told you that in our our previous um, lessons. What what would I say? Previous episodes. Mm-hmm. And she 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 did tell me that sometimes, like you can like if you are an opera singer, you might lose a job just because of how you look. Whoa sort of like comedians where some comedians when they're fat they get more laughs <laughs> but when they lose weight or like you're funny but you're not funny like your fat self oh that's interesting is that a thing okay yeah have you have you ever watched the show drake and josh before i have watched that show finally see this is an episode where i know some people so that feels good yeah i have so watched I- this show so I never know what you're going to know. So when you say, yeah, I've heard of that, my eyes light up. But uh, Drake and Josh, remember when the episodes first started, how fat Josh was? Yeah, so that guy was fat. Yeah, I remember. And there was this other guy, Drake, who sings well and plays a guitar, who was thin. And who would get all Ooh. the girls, but he was like dumb as fuck. Right. See, I would watch the show a lot when Josh was fat. And a lot of his antics was funnier to me. But when he lost all that weight, and I'm not trying to hate on the guy. I give him a lot of props for losing weight like that. But just psychologically, I didn't find him as funny. Hmm. And it's something similar that happened with Carlos Mencia, I believe, as well. Where in the beginning of his career, when he was heavy, he was making a lot of these uh, different racial jokes. And people would let it slide more because they're like, Ah, oh, this is just the fat uh, tubby guy. But later on, there was this one period where he lost a lot of weight. And something about it, when you're losing a lot of weight versus how you used to be, just in the field of comedy, I noticed that audience reacts to it differently. I didn't know about it with opera, but with comedy, I always knew about it. Hmm, that's very, very interesting. So basically, it's like when you're fat, people don't take things personally. They just disregard what you're saying. So you can say what you want more. But when you're fit or, you know, when you're not fat, then people pay more attention to what you're actually saying. And then it becomes like an issue for them. Yeah. And here's a little twist to it. Uh, so if you're, let's say, a good looking comedian, um, I think the last comedian that was considered pretty good looking or pretty in shape was Dane Cook. where Joe Rogan. To- Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, see, with him, I wouldn't say he's bad looking, but I think he has this certain look to him where it's still kind of funny to me, where he's short, he's bald, like he has this look. You know what what I think? I think a lot of comedy comes from the way you say something. And Joe Rogan does this really, really well, okay? Even in his podcasts, like the way he says certain things make it comical. If he if that was said in a normal voice in a, in a normal voice or in a, in a normal way, it won't sound as funny. 
by the way i'm just checking out drake and josh losing weight and yeah this guy lost a ton of weight like a ton of weight damn he looks pretty good now josh right and props to him because losing that much weight is not easy at all yeah losing weight is not that difficult but when you have like a lot of it getting started with it is very difficult like once you get started most people who i know will like lose a lot of weight fast it's like once you figure out how much you need to eat and once you get the ball rolling people typically find the motivation somehow and they train really hard and they lose the weight well the thing with him is he lost it and he kept it off where some people they'll lose it and gain it all back over time ah yes yeah. so the trick to doing that is to do that with a better lifestyle instead of crash dieting because when you crash diet you lose the weight but once you have finished your crash diet you, you come back to the previous lifestyle you were living and that is going to get you back to where you were versus if you actually change your lifestyle then you can keep the weight off because your new lifestyle will not have you put on the weight again do you get me right so you're saying it's more about lifestyle than just diet alone no it's more about lifestyle than crash dieting crash dieting got it there was this one episode harsh where you were talking about you know one of the things that you changed your mind slightly on is how certain people lose weight and how you have more empathy for them so for me there's this one guy that i know for the past 6 years he's been trying to get down to 175 pounds and each time he's getting close something in him just self sabotages himself and he ends each diet fatter than before damn and it's so peculiar dude because he knows so much like he knows all about dieting about nutrition it's just that when he's hitting that 175 mark he's getting close to it it's as though there's a different program that gets activated and let me just give you a, like a real life scenario he was at like 184 pounds which was a lot cuz he started off at 225 and i'm thinking yo this time he's about to do it he's actually about to hit 175 once he gets down to 180 one day he just comes and he's like you know what dude i'm going to celebrate so he goes to mcdonald's he orders like 10 different mcdoubles like these large fries and all that and for the rest of the week he just starts eating so much and eventually he just gains all his weight back so, so have you ever seen self sabotage like that i don't understand wh- how that works so if he's at 225 you're saying that when he eats for a week like that he gets back to 225 no 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 so he starts off at 225 and he's like this time i'm going to get down to 175 yeah but Book what it. weight does he end his you know bulk at again like so here's what happens he starts off as 225 he loses all the way to 180. i would say 180 his goal is 175 but every time he hits that 180 mark he springs back up to 225 to 230 sometimes now the last time i saw him he's at like 245 Yeah, that's a lot. What are his lifts? Is he strong or is he like just a fat guy? He's very strong, but the problem is his relationship with food. And I don't know. I don't 
I don't know if it's truly self-sabotage because what's the difference between 175 and 180? It's not that much. So he might just be doing a bulk and cut cycle, although he's bulking very dirty if he's eating McDonald's like that. No, nah, man, I don't think it's that. I, I think it's actually something strong, psychological. If he's, if he's actually like lifting when he's eating that much and then he's coming down and if he's getting stronger on his journey and he's not looking like shit, then I don't see what the problem is. No, he looks like shit. That's the problem. Oh, so he's like a fat guy, not like a strong guy. Yeah, he's a fat guy that could lift pretty heavy. Uh, but for him, he's setting that goal. He's like, no, I need to get to 175. And the thing is, when I first met him, he had that goal. Like he was 175. And he has that look where it's pretty good looking for him at 175. But somewhere along the lines, like his relationship with food is like he'll eat when he's bored. He'll eat when he's stressed. He'll eat like to fill time. And he's been like, he says like he has to talk to a therapist or something. But when you are bringing up like the relationship with how fat people, you know, deal with food, how it's not easy for them to just stop. It kind of made me think of this guy because I'm like, man, he's always getting so close. But no, he but just something. If this guy can cut from 225 to 180, then he knows what to do. And he isn't like a complete idiot. I would say I would say the situation here is that although he's telling everyone that his goal is 175 I bet his real goal in his own head is 180 you know what I mean for example some sometimes people will exaggerate their goals just because they think that if they aim for the stars they will land on the moon type situations or wait if they aim for the moon they'll land among the stars type situations so I think his goal his real goal is probably 180 and not 175 which is why he does this on 180 yeah i'm not fully sure why he does the dirty bulk thing every time that sounds crazy to me i i would say that that's like a bad discipline issue there but if you can cut down to 180 he can also cut down to 175 it's the same thing so my guess is that his true goal was 180 see i would believe that like See, I, I think the more that we talk and the more context that we give, like you'll start to see the psych- psychological part of this where there were some times where I'm just like, dude, like you're like something in him, like he wants to hit this 175 goal again. But whenever, he, see, the thing with self-sabotage, the way it works is that people often think that self-sabotage means that you never get your foot in the door in the first place. But the way that self-sabotage really works is that you're pretty much at your goal, but then there's like this subconscious program that gets activated that alters the narrative. And that's when you self-sabotage, when you're about to hit the goal. So one thing that I noticed about him was that he like is very obsessed with this 175. Like I would believe that it was the 180, like that was his goal. But the fact that he keeps springing up right when he's getting close, I think this is a classic case of self-sabotage. And the more that I've talked to him, like him and his brother have the same exact issue. Where for his brother, he wants to get down to like 195. But anytime he hits 200, he springs and balloons back up to 275. 
275. So, that is so big. Mm-hmm. I hope these guys are like jacked as shit and they're lifting very heavy and not like just bubbly fat guys. So they're pretty fat guys, but they were athletes in high school. Like if you see them now versus in high school, they look very different. They were in the basketball team and the football team. So they're very athletic people with a bunch of fat on top of them. So say you're looking at them for the first time, you'll be like, and these are just fat kids. But if you're going to the gym with them, they'll probably lift as much or not more because they're they're still pretty strong. Hmm. Yeah, in that case, it just, I wouldn't say it's too big of an issue for them to be that heavy then. I think they just need to lose a bit of weight and just keep it down. And yeah, as you said, figure out their relationship with food because, you know, what's the point of getting down to 180 if you're just going to start dirty bulking? Like the whole point of getting down is to get up again slowly so that you can get stronger. And not so that you get like a free pass for three months to eat whatever you want. <laughs> Unless that was your goal. It could be that this guy just cuts down so that he can eat like a maniac again for some time. <laughs> no, man. He feels so embarrassed when he just keeps ballooning up again. He's like, man, I can't believe I let it happen again. I was only five pounds away this time. And I think this is a pretty good conversation, Harsh, because I did notice people have very different relationships with food. So for me, for example... Anytime I go home back to West Palm Beach, my mom like offers me a lot of snacks and, you know, little stuff that parents offer their kids whenever they're visiting. Especially Indian parents like ours, you know, we get a lot of food. A lot of food being offered. But for me, I eat at a certain time. And other than that, I don't eat at all. While other people, like they'll eat their certain meals and throughout their day, they'll snack as well. Like, I don't do snacking at all. What's your relationship with food like? Or do you follow like a strict schedule or do you kind of wing it more? So what I do is I have a particular amount particular amount of calories I want to eat and a particular amount of protein. And I try to stay within, say, when I'm cutting, I would try to stay within 60, 65 grams of fat. So I eat whatever I want, but I try to keep it in the range of my macros and I try to keep it healthy. So while cutting, for example, if I'm, say, eating 2,000 calories and, say, 180 grams of protein and under 60 grams of fat, then my only options are eating very healthy food because otherwise I will not make my macros. I will not eat enough protein or I will eat too many calories. So for me, it's just figuring out the macros itself. So I might have, like, say, six egg whites and six whole eggs. or I'll have, like, I'll have like a couple of scoops of, scoops of whey protein, etc., so for me, I don't particularly care about eating at a particular time or I or you know, like eating particular foods in specific. I just want to hit my macros. And usually I will try to not snack because snacking makes you hungry. So what what happens when you snack, especially when you're like eating something that is sweet or has carbohydrates, it makes your blood sugar spike. And spiking blood sugar it makes you hungrier. Like hunger has a lot to do with your blood sugar going up and down. So when you snack, you feel hungry and hungry and you want to eat more. So I don't snack just to avoid that issue. I do think that snacking is a terrible habit people get into because 
you end up eating way too much food if you start snacking you know incidentally one of the reasons why those keto types diet diets work so well for weight loss is because when you're not eating carbohydrates you and you're not making your blood sugar levels go up and down and up and down repeatedly like your blood sugar stays low and at some point of time you just stop feeling hungry like in a couple of days or like a week or two of doing mm-hmm. keto or like not barely consuming any carbs you will just stop feeling hungry because you're not changing a blood sugar level too much the only issue with keto is that it becomes really difficult to train hard you need carbohydrates to train hard so i don't do keto but it does work for people who want to lose weight while being sedentary like they don't want to exercise but they just want to eat less and lose weight keto is perfect for that perfect for that because it just kills your appetite you just don't want to eat the fat and protein make make it like really easy for you to feel full and the lack of blood sugar spikes also like takes away the hunger and appetite from you see keto is something <laughs> i think i changed the topic what were we talking about earlier <laughs> <laughs> well it started off with a uh, comedians then it went on to my friend who was self sabotaging oh uh, yeah and then Maybe we started talking about keto keto if he's already strong and you could probably teach him how to do keto or something i think keto is something you could do as a non vegetarian if you're eating meat i see some people try to do it in india and that's just stupid like how do you do keto on a vegetarian diet like your diet is mostly carbohydrates it's like trying to do right. non dairy but your main source of milk or your main source of food is going to be dairy so non say like lactose free diet but all you have to eat is dairy so that's stupid <laughs> that's like doing keto on a veg diet it's the same thing do you have a good amount of energy from your diet yeah i eat carbs i i don't care about that i just try to make my macros i get quite a bit of energy oh okay when i'm bulking i have more energy than when i'm cutting because cutting it kind of makes you more sore from your workouts and it makes recovery harder so bulking is when i'll be more fresh and stronger but i do have a great amount of energy while i'm cutting as well what are you doing right now are you still cutting i am still cutting so currently i'm down to 91.5 kg from 100 kg about 3 and a half months ago i intend to go down to 85 or maybe 82ish and then so i So you're 91.5 kg? Yeah. That's 201 pounds. Yeah, so you Yeah, i think when we were starting this podcast you were what like 210? I don't remember. <laughs> you you still got the beard or you shaved it off? Oh, i shaved it off for now. I shaved it while i was i shaved it on i shaved it like on the 2nd of january or something just to try something new for the new year but mm-hmm. i've decided to grow it back because my neckline is not as sharp as i would like it to be right <laughs> now <laughs> i need to lose like 6 7 8 more kg of fat you ever just had a mustache for one day and then i cut it <laughs> off <laughs> you probably look like an uncle not like an uncle but it's not the look you know that i like I I would either like have like a short beard or like that stubble thing, you know? Like it just has a black shade. 
but not yeah, like, the midnight shadow. Yeah, like that. What about you? How much do you weigh right now? Um, I am. I would say one eighty-five. But I, I'm not like small or anything. I'm like, I'm at like that size right now, Harsh, where I have a lot of energy throughout the day, and you know, I, I still look good with my clothes on. Mm. I'm I'm six foot tall, so I think we're around the same height, and you know, still got the comb over. You know what I realized? I actually was having this convo recently. You ever heard of people getting a different hairstyle after like a traumatic moment? I did remember watching some TV show about a decade ago, which had this as a plot. I think it was the newsroom or something where this chick sees some kid die and then she just cuts her hair short. I haven't seen it in happen in real life to someone. Do you know someone like that? Bro, like a lot of people, like when I see them like go through like, let's say a bad breakup, they'll cut their hair super short. Or if it's a guy, they change up their hairstyle in one way, shape or form. And I saw a tweet uh, like a few days ago. I should have bookmarked it. But it was talking about how there's a lot of, I don't know what it was, man. I don't know if it was like a completely like pseudoscience or if this guy was spitting facts. Uh, but he says like a lot of your identity is in your hair. So when you cut it off, it makes the moving on process much easier. Or when you alter it in some way, shape or form, it alters your identity, which speeds up the moving on process. So when I heard that, I was like, is this true or not? Sounds like bullshit. Sounds like bullshit. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know for sure. <laughs> but I don't think that identity is stored in the hair in any way, shape or form. Although I do think that, say, you change how you look significantly, you might see like a different person in the mirror. You know what I mean? And you might, your brain might interpret it as a new chapter in your life or something I was like just that. Gonna, I, I was just going to say chapter. So my first ever uh, speech in Toastmasters, like the icebreaker speech, was called The Four Haircuts. And basically throughout my life, I've had four different haircuts that represented different chapters of my life. And I basically talked about the symbolic part of like the different haircuts. But I wouldn't say that I was doing this consciously. It was something that happened subconsciously. But I can see the case for how identity and haircuts do have some link. I don't know if it's something in terms of chemical. But I think, let's say, you're someone who's always had like shaggy hair, right? Just subconsciously, that is similar to you. Uh, I don't know. You may be considered like a lazy guy or someone who doesn't mm. take your appearance too seriously. But if you go from shaggy to having a comb over that you consciously comb, now it can be like the start of a new chapter where you're like, no, I'm just more mindful about who I am. It's kind of like a person who alters their wardrobe entirely. It's like a new identity. Yeah, I can see that working. I don't think anything about your identity is stored in your hair. I think that's bullshit. But I agree with you that changing up how you look can affect your personality. Yeah, it's like an evolution. What about you? You still you still taking your fashion seriously? Or I recall you said you were thinking about looking into that. What do you mean fashion seriously? Like, do you... I forgot which episode it was, but we were talking about how we were both curious about how style works and how fashion uh, works for yes. men. 
I haven't looked too much into it yet, to be honest. Maybe for the future. Currently, I'm just too occupied with crypto and LMM and affiliate marketing. So once I get done with the crypto course, maybe I will look into how men's fashion works. Like not, I, I like I know what to wear, but I would like to understand how fashion impacts the brain. Like why do some colors appeal more than others? For example, do you know that when women wear red, they look hotter? But why? You think it's primal? Could be. Could be something where red has to do with sexual attraction. But there's more to this than what I'm saying. Because are you familiar with the color wheel? Yes, I am. So there are like three primary colors and there are three secondary colors. And if you combine, if you place two different colors next to each other, you can affect how the colors seem to your eyes. Like, have you seen these illusions where the, there's two same colors on the screen, but they have like different backgrounds, so they look like completely different colors? Like, right. Are you talking about that uh, blue dress, black dress, white dress, gold dress one? No, that's a you different You know what I'm thing. talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. But I mean something that has, if you take the color, like the RGB value of that particular color, it will look different to your eyes, but it will be the same color. Oh, okay. Wait, let me find you something on Google, right? I'll share a link and we could put that in the show notes for people to see. I think I know what you're talking about, where it's like an optical illusion, where one gray looks darker than the other gray, but it's just because of the placement. Yeah, you could say that. But what I mean to say is that there are color combinations which change how different colors look. So, for example, if you place yellow with some color, I, I don't I don't remember this exactly, but if you place yellow with, say, the opposite color of yellow on the color wheel, then it will make both of these colors look more vibrant. So if you see how these old churches are painted, they're painted keeping these color wheels in mind, which is why they look so much brighter. Like even flowers, mm. like a yellow and red flower, the red and yellow look more vibrant because they're together. So if you look at red and black, the same red will not look as red as it was with looking as as it looked as red with yellow. Sorry, let me let me reset that. So if you have yellow, okay, and you have so you place yellow and red side by side, the yellow will look yellower and the red will look redder than if you had them say around black. See, if you had red and black, the red will not look as red as it did with when it was with yellow. Okay, I see what you're saying. Let me send you a link, and we could put that in the show notes as well. Check this link, and do you the A and B. Do you see? Do you think that they are different colors? Um, the link's not working for me. Oh, it's not. Wait, copy image link, paste. It's showing a redirect notice. Yeah, just click that. No, just redirect. Oh, I see what you're saying. And these two colors are the same, you're saying, right? Yeah, they're the same color. But they do they, not look the same color. That's so crazy to me. Yeah, so your eyes, so I'll tell you how color works, okay? The color is just so when light comes and hits an object, a certain portion of that light is absorbed. And what is left enters, bounces and enters your eyes. And your eyes has these cones to perceive color. And 
all of this perception is just in your head. So you could say that color exists in your head. You know, are you getting me? If you if you are not using light, if you were using like say electrons under under an electron microscope, you would not see color. So color exists in your head, and your brain interprets color according to the context in which that color exists. So in certain contexts, some certain colors appear differently than they actually are. So a color might have the same RGB value; it might have the same red, blue, and green. but it might just appear completely different to you so you could ha- you could say like i said you could place a, a a yellow with a red and it will look much more yellow than if you place the yellow with a black so mm. fashion and even nature has a lot of these gimmicks that kind of impact how we see things so flowers appear brighter because of green and yellow and red you get me it, it just mm-hmm. looks brighter than it is And yeah, uh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, and there's no. What you're basically saying is there's also no colors that we're actually perceiving out there. It's the light that we're perceiving. Exactly. So color, it's not exactly a substance in most cases. Like from what I understand, some like you can isolate certain substances which produce certain colors, but the color itself is just a pattern of light. There was this famous philosopher who said, "We don't." experience reality as it is we experience our nervous system and i thought that was pretty profound hmm that is true in fact i do think that the whole metaverse thing is a play on that have you seen the matrix yes have you yeah so oh, that's a guy we're like we're on a, a roll today <laughs> <laughs> so someone in the matrix is just experiencing their nervous system they're not experiencing reality and someone outside the matrix is also doing the same thing well and that's what makes storytelling powerful too because a good storyteller is able to influence someone's nervous system for example let's say i'm over here lying to you right now and saying that like let's say you have a brother and i'm telling you a lie the saying hey listen man uh, your brother just died in a car accident i'm very sorry and you start crying At this moment, this lie is altering your nervous system and altering your perception, and at that moment, you're perceiving it to be real. So, in some ways, like I saw the Matrix, I'm like, man, they're really covering the uh, the objective side. But then I started to see that there's a narrative side as well that the nervous system operates with, because a lie is just a story. You see what I'm saying? Can you elaborate? I. I... somewhat understand but i would like more clarity let me give you another example like let's say when you're watching a youtube video let's say of me and let's say you're watching uh, the armani talks youtube channel and it looks like to your nervous system that you're looking at me you're not really looking at me you're looking at pixelated. a pixelated version right you're looking at a pixelated version of me but if we're going to even take it a layer deeper you're not even looking at a pixelated version of me you're pretty much perceiving a bunch of on off on off electricity that's been combined with a bunch of processes to give the illusion of me but at this point your nervous system is perceiving it as me for example let's say my brother is watching it he's not seeing just a bunch of random pixels he's seeing his little brother and he may have certain emotions just by looking at a bunch of random pixels 
So I think this kind of ties back into your whole um, when you were talking about flowers and like colors, where the nervous system is not that easy to fool, and more importantly, we only perceive a very small sliver of reality. If you look at the electromagnetic spectrum, the visible light is a very very small part of reality. Have you ever seen an electromagnetic spectrum? I know what you're talking about. It's like there's a bunch of colors, and you can only see like a certain spectrum of light. So ultraviolet light or light which has like a lot of energy and very little energy, like infrared, are invisible to us. Correct. So if you look at it, um, basically, you see that rainbow color that I just uh, pasted. Yeah. I, by the way, for people listening, these links will be in the show notes for you guys to check out as well. Yes, and this is the one on electromagnetic spectrum, where look at what it's pointing to. That small sliver of reality is perceivable to the eyes. Everything beyond that, the eyes just can't perceive without the aid of other technology. And you know, an example of this is our microwave harsh, where some people think that you know when you when the light turns on in the microwave, that light is heating up the food. That's false. Instead, it's a magnetron that's creating,、uh, that's spinning in a certain motion, which creates microwaves that excites the electrons or the molecules in your food, that heats it up. So once again, in our microwave, there's these waves that are heating up our food, that's influencing so much of our reality, and we can't even perceive it with our eyes. I have a question, Arman, and I'm sorry if this sounds like like too noob, but what is a wave like? I know what a particle is, and I know that light is both a wave and a particle. And the way I interpret it so far is that, you know, it's a it's a particle traveling in this motion. But what is a wave exactly? Like, what is it? So, Since you're an engineer, by the way,、so、I should give people some context. Yeah, so a wave is just a moving particle, and. I know that probably seems way too simplistic of a definition.、Uh, so let me just give you an example. Your voice is an example of a wave, where it. And actually, I'll give you even a better example. Look at、uh, look at a Zencaster right now as we're recording it. No, but、uh, wait, see- Arman. If you say my voice is a wave, that's not a particle. So, for example, when I'm screaming, say, if I if I live on say, the tenth floor. And I'm screaming, and someone on the third floor hears me. Then, that wasn't the particle traveling to the th- to the third floor, right? So this is when, okay. So this is how the world of philosophy meets the world of engineering. There's two different types of philosophies right now. One group is saying that empty space is a thing. Okay, another group is saying that empty space is not a thing. It's just that we're not capable of perceiving the. The energy that's among us. So when you're actually speaking, let's say you're yelling, it's not as though that you're over here. Your voice is actually traveling from point A to point B. It's actually that there's this invisible field that's basically being bounced up and down. So think about it like this: Let's say you see a wave, or better yet, an ocean. Right. Now let's say I drop a rock in the Um, in the ocean, immediately, it's going to start creating a bunch of waves, right? Right. That wave is what 
some people say is how voice works, where there is no such thing as empty space. Empty space is simply an illusion. All we're doing is we're creating vibrations in the same field of energy. I know this is a tad bit confusing because now it's kind of. Are you talking about ether? Of, Are you talking about ether? Like um, A E T H E R. So ether. See, I could be talking about ether. I know different people perceive it in a different way. Where like a spiritual mind perceives it entirely different than um, a, a scientific mind. Um, how are you referring to ether as? I'll give you the context of what I'm referring to. I remember coming across something called Higgs boson particle, which was a big deal a couple of years ago, where it was like the God particle or something. And the way a friend of mine explained it to me was that, you know how like a fish is in water, it doesn't actually know that it's surrounded by water, but water itself is made of these particles of oxygen and hydrogen. So like it's made of molecules. So the concept, according to what my friend told me about Higgs boson, was that they f- they kind of proved the existence of some kind of force field or like water in a way that is surrounding us, and that Higgs boson particle is a particle of that particular water or whatever field or thing it is. And because mm. we are in that field and we bo- we're born in it, we're like a fish. We don't really understand. We can't see or perceive it, but it's still there. And that is why, say, photons that are light has no weight, despite it being a particle. So like a fish in water is weightless, but it has weight outside of water. So that's his explanation of why light had no weight. So I was just asking him, like, why, why, does, why do photons have no weight? Why is it traveling at the maximum maximum speed of the universe. So that is the explanation that I got. But then I didn't really look at, into it too much. Like I did, but I could not understand. So I just left it. Well, you make a very profound point about, let's say a fish. A fish talks to another fish and is like, where is this water that you speak of? I don't see any water. And it's living in water, but it can't perceive water because it's so much a part of its reality. And that's what a lot of the more information that we gain, the more it seems like, you know, this whole reality, it seems like it's one material, but it's in different names and forms. Where in the East, I know you guys actually have a phrase for it. I think you guys call it what, like Maya or something. And in the West, there were a lot of new age people, I would say 100 years ago, that were making the conclusions that everything is made out of the same material but it's just a different form of that same material. Uh, to give you an example, uh, back to the ocean. The waves cannot exist without the ocean, right? But the ocean can exist without the waves. Let's say you see 50 different waves. Mm-hmm. Rather than trying to get to know every single wave, just get to know the ocean first, and immediately you know all the waves. So what happens nowadays is that we're so far away from like the fundamental part of reality that we're all getting our own little waves. We're like, this wave is called humanities. This wave is called hard science. This wave is called soft science, blah, blah, blah. But what these old age people were saying is that, no, when you get to the core of it all, it's all the same source in different names and forms. 
And to just give you one more example, life math money, where you have life math money blogs, life math money podcasts, life math money tweets. Let's say at a certain point, it gets so freaking complex where random people discover each of your content and they're saying that the tweets, blogs, and podcasts are all different. Sure, uh, it's different in terms of how it's being perceived. When someone is listening to your podcast, only the ears are activated. When someone is reading your blog, only the eyes are being activated. So in terms of the senses which are activated, it's different. What about the content? Yes, let's say in podcast, you're speaking about comedy. In the blog, you're speaking about weightlifting. So the content is even different. But let's say someone is like, I know they seem different to the senses and in terms of the content, but it's the same exact source. At first, they're going to be like, no, no, man, how is this the same? But the more they look at it, the more they see it's life math money simply in a different form. One is in a podcast form. One is in a blog form. Are you getting me so far? I am. Although, how does it tie back into, say, waves? I'm super interested to know how waves work, but go ahead, say what you were saying. Well, no, uh, well, the reason that we're kind of talking about this is, I think um, we were talking about the fish for a while, like oh, how right, the fish yeah. is. In... Yeah, so um, the reason that it's kind of difficult to just answer the waves question is that um, it depends which philosophy that you're operating with. If you're someone who believes in empty space, then you think that a photon goes from point A to point B. While if you're someone who doesn't believe in empty space, you think it's just a disturbance in the same um, field of energy. Hmm. Have you seen people do those whips in the gym with their fat ropes? I have. I think, like at least, I think that could be how a wave works. Like, you know, you create like a motion and then one particle pushes the other and the other particle pushes the other. So the particle which actually started it doesn't actually reach the end but the momentum does so that is how how i understand it so far but the reason i think my understanding is not correct completely is because how do these guys communicate with spacecraft in space like there are not enough particles to push against each other so there has to be more to the story you know what i mean mm-hmm so it it can't just be particles pushing other particles, like say while doing whip ropes in the gym, even though it's still making the wave pattern, because you can do it in a complete vacuum in space. Well, here, here's another part to your question where it's um right now we're delving into uh, information and communications theory. And the fundamental part of any information theory is two things, the medium and the message. That's what you need in order to communicate uh, content. Let's say you're writing a journal. Your medium is the paper, and the message is the words that you use. Us creating this podcast, me and you are creating the uh, words, and the podcast uh, is the medium. The thing with a lot of the science in the West is they focus just on the message, but they're not necessarily focusing on the medium as much. My question is, how is it that a particle is going from uh, point A to point B? And they're, they're just focusing on the message. They're like, we're communicating this. But my thing is, what medium is it going through? 
And the more that I think about that, the more that I think that there are like all these waves between me, you, from me to this computer right now, that is just not perceivable to the senses. And I think that a wave, to answer your question, is just disturbances in this field of energy. Mm, interesting. Do you remember we were discussing how magnets work a couple of podcasts ago? Mm-hmm. And I remember coming across similar similar explanations where a magnet works because it dis- it's disturbing the ether or the field which you're talking about. And it's an interesting explanation. I, I do find the whole particle and force field things to kind of collide and not explain everything in the sense that you can explain certain things with particles okay how plants are moving you can predict where they will be if you understand how particles move and you treat those planets and the solar system as particles but that breaks down when you go say on an atomic level because then you have these atom atoms jumping from one place to the other and it basically newtonian physics does not work on a quantum level you you must know this for sure yes so it it seems like the different parts of the universe or you know different things on different sizes seem to operate with different rules and i would like to know why and secondly and this might also there you know this might also be like a dumb question but i i want to know why time is slower when you move faster like you know are you familiar with relativity by einstein relativity uh, i'm right like this uh the space curves yeah so why is time slower when say a satellite is moving faster because that's mm. a very unintuitive concept you know what i mean like i don't i don't get why that would happen like i bet it's happening because these guys have to use atomic clocks to synchronize time but why like why in fact i think a lot of these why's go unanswered and i would like to figure out why like i want to know why <laughs> things are being pulled towards the earth why gravity exists why is it that when i drop my watch it falls on the ground I would like to know why a magnet is pulling things to itself. I want to know why we're able to hear each other say when we're speaking in real life like without these particles moving like how do these waves work? And I would also like to know why is time changing itself. So it also begs the question of what exactly is time then? So you know I I will probably look into it further when i have more time <laughs> <laughs> i should go slower then <laughs> <laughs> well it's a it's a really good uh questions that you're bringing up right now because i mean this is how the curious mind operates and when you know something is changing so much it kind of makes you think you know how fundamental is it is it a fundamental force or is it a a derivative you see where nowadays you know there's more and more researchers that's talking about us living in uh, like an information uh, like system or for example let's say you and i were listening back to this podcast when we're over here like rewinding fast forwarding etc like for us time doesn't really exist 
in terms of new media, a lot of the new media that me and you are operating with, it allows us to think in a completely different way. Where before, a harsh being in multiple places at the same time was not a reality at all. But nowadays, I mean, you write a tweet, your tweet goes to uh, India, US, Nigeria, etc. Not China, so China now, Nigeria. It's banned in Nigeria. <laughs> no, I think it just got unbanned yesterday. Wait, got unbanned. One of my Nigerian followers told me yesterday. I love um, the guy who runs Nigeria. He's like, just ban it. Like, screw them. <laughs> I was so unaware of this. Why did they? Why did they ban it for? I think the guy said something which Twitter didn't like, so Twitter deleted his tweet, and then he said, "I delete Twitter." <laughs> ah. <laughs> I know it's like censorship from Twitter's end. So you know what's funny is that Twitter will delete this guy's tweet and then this guy will ban Twitter and then Twitter will say, hey, that's against free speech. Twitter does not huh? see the irony there. Like first Twitter will censor this person, like this king of Nigeria. And then when the Nigerian king will ban Twitter in Nigeria, Twitter will say, hey, this guy's against free speech. Look, he's banning Twitter. Like, does that add up to Twitter? How? Like, how does that make any sense? If Twitter cares about free speech, then why is it reading tweets? Too many, too many of these policy rules. No, have you ever just, been placed? Have you ever been placed in Twitter timeout? I have not, not yet. Dude, I'm actually very surprised that I'm not saying you're like you know tweeting content that should be in timeout, but I thought like at least once you would have been in that position i have read all the twitter rules and i try to just follow them and i most of my controversial content does not go on twitter it goes on my telegram group because telegram is more free speech friendly i would say so if someone is interested in uncensored life math money check out my telegram group the links will be in the description oh, i'm gonna check it out too man i think you're in it i don't know it, I thought like I was in it, but I didn't get them. Okay, I thought I was in it, but I deleted Telegram for a while and I didn't see it. But I'm pretty excited to see what's in the group. So originally, it was a paid group where you would pay me like ten bucks a month to be in the group. But like in just like a week of doing that, I realized how free speech the platform is and how many people are using it. So there were I refunded everyone. So I refunded every single person who paid for it, and I made the group free. And then I put out links on Twitter for people who want to join. And currently we have about 10,000 people in it. And you can have like free discussions about whatever you want. You can talk about race, IQ, gender, different theories, conspiracy theories, whatever, without getting banned. So it's truly free speech. Although I will ban you if you start insulting people for no reason. Like, you know, we had some members who would like if two people are having a discussion like this one guy will go up and ask him hey what's your cast and then start berating him for it <laughs> so if you're like being disruptive i will ban you but we are pro free speech how i'm sorry to uh, do the side tangent but how important is the cast in india it used to be very important nowadays no one really cares that much outside of getting married where if you say married to uh, to a cast that's way outside your family might give you a hard time but lately it doesn't matter as much okay because i used to have this uh, like this college classmate who you used to always be like oh i'm a brahman if, if you don't know 
and I didn't really know what he was saying at the time. But, How come? Oh wait, you, yeah, Bangladesh. No, I, no, I knew like the caste system, but like I'm like, why are you telling me for man? <laughs> Is this supposed to matter to like other people or mainly in uh, the caste? Is that even a question? It doesn't like, really it, matter. Although sometimes people will use it as a way to connect with others. For example. If two of you are from the same cast, then it's like, you know, wearing the same type of shirt in a way where like, oh, you guys can be friends now easily. You have something in common. Oh, okay. Okay, I see what you're saying. But it doesn't matter as much as it used to. But I would not say that it doesn't matter at all because it does have some implications. For example, if you are, say, from particular castes, especially the lower castes, like SCSTs, then the the government will give you free shit and, you know, easier jobs. It's easier for you to get into universities. Versus if you're from a higher caste, you get nothing. So they just flip the definition. I'm trying to see if we have a parallel to that in the U.S. You do. So in the U.S., you know how universities try to be diverse? And they will say, if you are Indian or Chinese or white, they will... Oh, that's the equivalent? Okay. They will reduce your SAT scores. And if you are, say, a black person or I don't know what other people you have, they're Latinos or whatever, and they want more of those people in the university, they will increase their scores. Like they, are you talking about affirmative action? Yes, that. So that is from what I, I i don't really know how the u.s university system works but this is from what i've heard so they like if you're indian or like chinese or white they they kind of penalize you and if you're black or some other race that's not like represented as much in their university they kind of give you extra points so it's basically discrimination against you know it's a worse type of discrimination the one against me so <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> they have remixes to that where, like, if you come to the U.S., a lot of places have um, army discount. Where if you're in the army, you'll probably get like I don't know, like five, ten, fifteen percent off of something. So, have you ever heard of Dunkin' Donuts? I have heard of it. Okay, so I used to work in Dunkin' Donuts in college. What? And yeah, I mean, this was just a small little hustle. Um, you know, just to get some work experience and get some money. Okay. So I was working in Dunkin' Donuts and I, this was like my first day and there was this uh, soldier that comes in and he's like, uh, sir, do you offer the uh, army discount? I'm like, no, sir, we do not. And for the next uh, couple of days, he was a routine uh, like customer. And each time he would come, I'd be like, no, sir, we do not. And I think like one weekend, my manager's like, you idiot. Yes, we do give the army discount. So I basically <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, I was, I was like, oh, man, I didn't know about that. And he's like, how do you not know about it? All Dunkin' Donuts do that. I was like, oh, dang. I don't think it's just for the army either. I think it's for police officers and for other particular positions. So if you're working at Dunkin' Donuts, make sure you give the damn discounts. Yeah, that that is something I wouldn't... I'm not too opposed to it. It's like a student discount, you know. The army people don't make as much money and they're sacrificing so much for the country. So it, it's okay to give them a lower price. So I don't see much wrong with that. I do think it's not right to 
penalize someone for being Indian or Chinese or white. Like, just keep it like a fair merit-based system, you know. But, you know, who cares? These universities are going to zero because the internet is going to replace them. And the internet truly doesn't care what color, white, blue, green you are. Internet really doesn't care. I mean, you're at this point where you're growing the, you know, Life Math Money brand and you've only had to do it with, you know, your words and your voice. I mean, you could you could technically be a white guy with a great voice, Indian voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, man. I don't want to be discriminated against by being white, so fuck that. That's a downgrade. <laughs> Oh, by the way, I actually had a question uh, from our last uh, YouTube video. Uh, this was asked by one of your past customers of the uh, Twitter product. And he was wondering how he could grow uh, his, uh, his Twitter page and still keep the same quality content without sacrificing the quality and turning it into some sort of a platitude account. Oh uh, yeah, so this guy was asking like so he bought the Twitter guide and he got his account with three thousand followers and I think he was making some money and I don't remember his question incomplete because it, he left like three paragraphs, but yeah, so he was making some money, but he was seeing all these other accounts who were smaller than him make more money than him by selling guides in a way. So sometimes people what they will do is that they will take my Twitter guide, they will make an account, they will have some success. And instead of, say, be more creative or do something new, their main way to monetize their new account would be just write, rewrite a guide on how to make money from Twitter. In other words, they're scammers. So this guy was asking what he should do. And to him, my advice is to just, my advice is not to become a scammer, is to focus on growing your account and create really helpful products for the people who are following you for whatever problems they are facing. For example, if your content, if you're writing, say, about trading stocks, then make a product that stock traders need. Maybe they need some kind of training or whatever. I don't know that much about trading stocks, but clearly you do. So you must identify a need that your following needs and then fill that need. If your way of making money online is to sell a product on making money online and no other, you have no other income online, you're scamming. And a lot of people are doing that nowadays. So just don't do it. Like if you want to make the real money in the long run, you have to create a proper product that helps people and not just make a get rich quick scheme. So first get like a good income in place by making a really helpful product. And then maybe if you learn something new that no one else is talking about, maybe you could create a guide on that as well. So I'm not saying you can never make a guide on making money online. But if your way of making money online is just by selling guides, then you're a scammer. So <laughs> scammers will make money, but not that much. So don't don't get into don't get into that business. Just focus on increasing your value and find a need that you can fulfill. For example, with my own audience, my first product that was successful was my program on discipline so it's a 90 day self-improvement program and that program is very successful it sells a lot of copies on gumroad and elsewhere so that is what you should do figure out what your audience wants my audience wanted a 
program that will help them be more disciplined, be more focused, be more increase their willpower. And that's what I created. And currently this guy has like 3000 followers. So his focus shouldn't really be on making money right now. Your focus should just be on growing your account. Like try to get it as big as you can. You can always make money later. Even if you're not making as much money as you're making now, as your audience grows, you will pull in more money. I think a lot of people nowadays, especially young people, like this guy was like 18 years or 17 years old. They're in a rush. They just want to make all the money tomorrow. You have to give it time. You have to cultivate the audience. You have to learn more things. Don't focus on making money. Focus on adding value and on increasing your audience. And you will make money in the long run. It's not a race. It's not that you have to earn everything today. So stop thinking like that. That is thinking like a peasant. Like you're literally thinking like a peasant if you're just focusing on today's income. Think longer term and don't become a scammer because scammers don't win. Like I, I know a couple of guys on Twitter who who basically try to counterfeit me. Like there's a guy who instead of like picking some new content, what he did was he made an account called Life Health Money. And then he started taking my tweets and rephrasing them to make them like milder, like cowpiss versions of my tweet. And then just posting it on his account. And then when when people were calling him out on it, he changed his account name to Mind Health Money or something. So there's a lot of scams online and it would be best if you don't do it because these guys will fail eventually because their content just sucks. Like their content is like a piss version of my content. And it's it's like I feel bad for their followers, you know, like not only do, do they get like diluted LMM content, but they also get it with a delay. So they'll take older content of mine and then they'll add like, they'll basically take away most of the knowledge, which is like either controversial or whatever. And they'll just post it as like a platitude. So the con- they turn the good content into shit and then they <laughs> just give it out. And it's just, it's a scam. How often do you see people copying you like that? Once a week, at least. Have you ever seen an account, like a pretty big account, plagiarize one of your tweets? I've had accounts that had more followers than me. Copy and paste my tweets word to word, like not even change a thing, like word to word. And then when people call them out on it, they'll just block me. So it's it's just one of those things, you know, like imitation is the best form of flattery. Mm Mm-hmm. What about you, Arman? Did, I bet you've had a lot of people copy your tweets. I remember there was a guy who was doing it. I think I DM'd you about it. Yeah, you DM'd me about it. And I recall hitting him up. Because for me personally, like the, I, when I see it, I actually see it as flattery. Uh, because I'm just like, listen, man, I'm not stopping for anyone. I'm going to just keep going. So, I mean, if you want to copy me, I mean, do what you got to do. But you're not learning the ultimate skill set of creative writing. So ultimately, you're losing, you see? Mm-hmm. And I actually you know, saw this pretty big account who's somewhat respected, I guess, uh, pretty much plagiarized one of my tweets and put like dash, dash, dash. So if you like search the tweet on Twitter, you won't find it because he kind of did these line breaks and put dashes in front of it. Uh, but when I saw it, I was pretty flattered. I'm like, 
man, like your <laughs> your account is way bigger than mine, and you're uh, pretty much uh, copying and pasting this tweet, and it's my most popular tweet yet, uh, which used to be my pinned tweet. Uh, if you write it down, you will soon become it. That tweet, and you know, since then, like if you just write that tweet and you post it on Twitter, you'll see a lot of people copying it. And my thing nowadays is, you know, this is similar to what was happening in the music industry a couple of years back, where you know an artist would release a song, and then all these other bootleggers will come out of the mix. You trying to create kill these bootleggers uh, may seem noble, but you kill one and like five of them reappear. So I think if you can keep doubling down on your greatness, like your skill set, your creative writing skills, uh, eventually you'll win in the long run. And that's what you were saying. You got to think big picture. Yep, agree with everything you've said. Although I do think that a lot of people who try to counterfeit you, they do some damage to the entire men's self-improvement space because it's like what he's what this guy said okay like in his comment he said that everyone's making platitude posts but is that true i don't think the people at the top who are actually producing quality content are making platitude posts it's all the copycats but then when an external viewer sees the space he sees everyone, he sees all the copycats, and then he thinks, okay, these are just a bunch of people making platitudes. And I have nothing against platitudes, but it kind of gives the wrong impression to people who are new to the space, and it turns them off in a way. And I, I do think that, I mean, whenever something scales, where in 2018, I mean, if you saw a platitude account, I mean, that was something that was out of the norm. 2018 was like two centuries ago in the internet age, you know? (laughs) It was, it was. I saw your tweet about that, how internet time flies by quick. But like back then, if you saw a Platitude account, you'll be like, ah, man, like what the heck? Like, bro, think of something original. But nowadays, if you see an original account, you're like, well, what the heck? Uh, You exist? Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think, you know, Platitudes, I don't think they're inherently bad, but... You know, when someone just posts platitudes, it's just obvious that they don't have much to say and they're just trying to appease every single audience. Go ahead. Sorry, I cut you off. Well, I think platitude, like if you earned that platitude from like some real world experience and it's like, whoa, like this was learned from grit, grind and like, you know, like a spirit then go ahead, post what you got to post. But if you're just over here just kind of copying and pasting something that like some dude from Fiverr gave you, I think that's kind of like, I don't I don't think that's going to be successful for you in the long run. I think you're going to eventually learn the hard way that like you got to learn the skill. You got to learn the skill of creative writing at one point or another. And I actually want to give you, so let me give you an example. So this isn't a platitude. Uh, uh, this is a tweet that I posted. Work ethic is a sign of intelligence. When you see a person who consistently shows up and gives more than expected, you're making eye contact with the future legend to be. See, this is a a talk about work ethic and consistency. And it's from real world experience. So if you can like create content like that, where you could kind of sense like, okay, this guy is talking from like, uh, like real world experience versus just copying and pasting. 
I think then I see a case for like something that may be perceived as platitude. But I think if you're talking from real world experience, like it doesn't even count as a platitude anymore. For my thing, platitude is just something that everyone else is saying and you're just kind of like joining the parade. Yeah. And so for context, the way I interpret platitude are sentences like smile more, it's a bright day and things like that, you know, where you (laughs) said nothing, but you made everyone feel good. Or it's just something that was like not specific at all. So for example, a, a good platitude, which I see people post all the time is go out and have fun and sleep more. Like, you know, have you seen this sentence? Like, um, wait, it's like eat hard, train hard, it's train hard, play hard or something like that. W- what is the sentence? I forgot. Wait. Work hard, work hard, work play, hard, hard. play hard. Yeah. It's shit like that. Like that is a platitude. Like it, it doesn't really give you any information. It, it's not actionable. It's just like one of those bumper sticker type quotes where you just put it there. Everyone can read it, but no one gets any value from it. And I'm not going to lie. Like, I think like if the intent is to just like strictly uh, like, you know, grow fast and appeal to like a general audience, people like that are going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, man, work hard, play hard. Like I needed that. Uh, But there's going to be certain people that um, they'll probably be like, ah, that's so generic. I want something like more specific. Uh, and that's it where the nuance comes in. It has to be actionable advice. If all of this work hard, play hard stuff, it's fine to post them once in a while. But if that's all your account is doing, then you might as well not run the account. You might as well just download a bunch of platitudes, put it up on, say, an automation software like Zlapo or something, and just disappear. Like, it'll auto-post it. Like, why does a human even need to be involved? If you're not talking from any experience or knowledge that you have bro that legitimately for me personally sounds like torture where like for me like my twitter account is for creative expression uh, documenting my journey and really helping people out i think your account is completely anti-platitude because your account has a ton of specific knowledge from experience absolutely and you know i get so many dms about that Uh, they're like man like I've been reading your tweets for so long that nowadays when I'm in a real world experience, your tweet just kind of comes in my mind and alters my behavior completely. And see, that's what I like to hear where, and I think, you know, I'm not going to project my experiences on other people. I do get some people who are like, man, I just kind of want another income source. And what you were explaining where, you know, you get a bunch of tweets, you post it on Slapo, however you pronounce it, and it goes up. That's their ideal situation. While what I do is kind of like, oh man, I definitely don't want that. How do you view your Twitter? Is it uh, more for yourself, like creative expression, help people? I view it currently. So earlier, like say back in 2020, 21, I saw Twitter as a growth engine. Like it it was bringing me new audiences. So I was posting my experience and what I learned from life on Twitter as a way to bring more eyes on life math money. But lately, like especially 2021, the Twitter algorithm, the Twitter algorithm has been really slow. So currently I just see it as a secondary platform and I've been trying to grow more on other platforms like YouTube, etc. 
So the way I look at Twitter has changed. So earlier, like way earlier, back in 2018, Twitter was a way to get more people on the LMM blog, lifemath20.com. Then it became like a primary place to create content because of how many people it was going to. Like My audience was growing really fast. In 2021, though, the algorithm was really slow. Most people barely grew. Although I did gain like 80,000 followers, which is good, but not as great as you would like. So for this year, 2022, Twitter is going to be secondary. And I do intend to focus more on YouTube and the blog and the newsletter, etc. Yeah, you told me that you use Twitter as a personal diary. Are you still doing that or do you intend to do something different in 2022? So I still use it as a diary, a journal to clarify my thoughts. And more importantly, it serves as a a web where I'll get content from there and I'll make YouTube videos on it. And then I'll get content from there and I'll promote my email list, create content for my email list, which goes onto a book. So where in 2018, Harsh, I viewed Twitter kind of like as the standalone piece of the Armani Talks brand. Nowadays, it's more like a web. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's like it's all connected. You get like ideas from one place, you publish content to the other place. And then, for example, you might get more ideas to make tweets from the replies to the comments, etc. The replies to the videos, etc. Interesting. And, and it's sort of like market research done for you as well where most of the people that come in my DMs, they're telling me exactly what pain point they have uh, and how they can fix it. And if I see multiple people asking the same exact thing, I'm like, you know what? Let me just write a book on it and then I'll just solve that. So Twitter... Uh, Yeah, that's a great product creation or even like a good strategy to find out what the market wants. Like what do people want and... uh, it's like you said, like leaving your DMs open is a great way to do that. Go ahead. Yeah, and just market research done for you. And like, say down the line, if you um, if you do take the time to answer a question, it's going to help you out in the long run. Where, for example, one of my highest performing videos on YouTube is uh, the video about nervous laughing, how and why people do that. And there was a kid that just asked me about it. And I'm like, huh, I didn't really know that other people actually faced nervous laughing. And that's when I thought about it. And I was able to recall a moment from my past when I was doing it. So I basically created the story, posted it on YouTube from the DM that I got on my tweet. And nowadays, this video brings me in new subscribers, uh, more passive income. It sells my Charisma King book. So if you zoom out, you could use Twitter for much different uses than just treating it like a separate uh, entity. Mm, I see, I see. I agree with what you have to say about YouTube. YouTube is like a search engine, you know? It's like with Twitter. Like Twitter has one fatal issue that YouTube doesn't have. And that is that once you make a tweet, after, say, one or two days, your tweet is dead. Everyone just forgets about it and almost no one is going to see it again. But on YouTube, you might have like a video which is like five years old and even then, it will get more views and subscribers and 
comments and people will still be looking at it because people it's a search engine people are searching for new stuff and what they are searching for say 5 years from now might be a video that you made yesterday that doesn't exist on twitter instagram and platforms like that that is like a more of blog or youtube thing only mhm yeah like a tweet shelf life is pretty quick and let's say you write threads i had one of my followers recently who i ran the script and he collected all of my threads and those threads i could make into a book but for a tweet i mean yeah you're right it lasts for what couple of hours and sometimes it doesn't even make the news feed so i i think twitter should not be your only strategy it should just be a part of your strategy agree although i i will say that for people who are just starting out you you just need to focus on one platform so if you're doing twitter then just focus on twitter until it's reasonably big and then see how you can expand everywhere else don't do everything at once in the beginning oh yeah no no you're definitely right about that and i should have said that because personally for me for the first couple of months when i started in 2018 i literally just had a twitter and i used to get dms from people who were like you idiot i could collect emails sell something do something else cuz people would come <laughs> in and there was like no link or anything in the bio so once i started twitter eventually i added on what the email list right after and then afterwards i started the podcast and all that i i do agree with you. you especially when you're first learning i think twitter is one of the best platforms to just understand the micro essence of what it means to create content yeah twitter is a very easy platform in a way because you can just make content in like 1 minute because it's so short you know a lot of comedians nowadays actually test their jokes on twitter before deciding whether or not they want to make an entire bit on it they do that's interesting yeah, so I, i actually heard this interview from this comedian who i f- can't recall his name but he was talking about his joke writing process before twitter and after twitter and before twitter he said man you never knew what was going to stick because for a comedian they're basically by themselves they're creating the joke then they go to a bunch of these small local comedy clubs and they're basically testing it out live and they have no clue if their jokes are going to like hit or if it's just going to fall flat and a lot of the times they think they have a joke that's going to work and people actually boo them on it so nowadays with twitter rather than going to all the comedy clubs to like simply validate he can use his twitter audience and then the comedy clubs hmm that's really interesting so it's like using the audience to gauge their reaction to jokes exactly so if it's getting all these emojis and everything he's like whoa it works in the written word i should double down on it in the spoken word i wonder if a lot of these guys are doing it maybe there can be some kind of machine learning algorithm that can be applied and then we can figure out what actually makes people laugh without using people Yeah, I I do you know what I mean. Mhm. So mm, I'm I'm curious how that would work. For example, we could take like the reactions people got from say 1 million jokes. 
and then we could feed it into some kind of neural network and then when a commit we could excel subscriptions of that neural network to all the big comedians and then the comedian can input their joke in the system and the joke will the the software will give the comedian like a funniness score from 1 to 100 like how funny your joke is hmm well folks you heard it here <laughs> it's just a random thought like i just thought of you know about right machine now. learning uh make sure make sure you steal this idea quick it 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 wouldn't be impossible to do it it's i wouldn't say it's impossible especially with the amount of text processing technologies technologies available today you know this exists for music already like if you make a song and you want the song to be on radio they run it by a program and the program will tell you how people will react to the song and the program is very accurate so it can predict whether people will like it or not I see a case for that. I also see that kind of taking away the magic of the creative process. What do you think? I know, I know, I know, I know. I know about that, but what I mean to say is that from a business perspective, who cares about the magic of the process? Sony doesn't. Like the guys who are selling the music, they don't care. The guys who are making the music, they care. Yeah, you're right about that. Where you're talking about the perspective of the record labels. Yeah. Because you know what you just reminded me of? Have you ever heard of Jay Sean? I know we're on a streak today of knowing each other's people, but I do know. You heard of Jay Sean? So streak uh, over. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. No, so Jay, Jay Sean, I believe he's a, a British singer. I know Jay Sean, which is like a format to save stuff. No, no, no. Jay, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. No, his name is Jay Sean. Uh, he's a British Indian singer. He came to the U.S. and he blew up. Uh, roughly around 2012 to 2000 like 13 uh, those couple of years he was popping in the US and somewhere around 2015 to 2016 he disappeared and recently he started to make more interviews explaining why that was and he said that you know he got so uh, much into a clash with his record label company because they were kind of talking about what you mentioned where they had certain trends of what was hot what people liked and they wanted Jay Sean to make songs completely like in that genre and Jay Sean was like nah man this hurts my creative process i can't really flow with that so i get both perspectives where like as an artist you may not like that too much but as a businessman it's a way to enhance profitability no it's not just a way to enhance profitability it kind of gives you more predictability and stability Do you know what I mean? For example, you might invest a lot of money in marketing something which might just blow up. So it's good to know whether something is actually going to blow up or if it's not. So it takes away it it I know the artist's perspective. It takes away the edges like, you know, it takes away extreme successes and extreme failures, but it also makes everything more predictable. Yes, and especially if you're an artist who's like paving ways because what you're talking about it's always about what worked before and what's you know predictive analysis i guess but let's say you're creating something that's completely out of the norm you see what i'm saying some artists are like that yeah for those artists it's going to hurt them but for the average artist or at least it's good for say the average person 
or like the average artist, I would say, because they are less likely to fall outside the norm. And if the record label or the companies actually distributing their content can ascertain whether this actually has a chance of success or not, then they might have a better chance of being selected. Although in the future with decentralization, I don't think these record labels will be around for much longer. But it's still good to know. You should check out these YouTube videos uh, that talk about the dark sides of record labels. Man, these, uh, what do you call it? These videos are so interesting because they talk about the shady dealings that often go on. And it's something that I didn't really know about before. But, you know, a lot of these artists, uh, they get targeted in a certain way where they don't know how to read like financial papers, law papers or anything like that. And there are some stories of like people get paid like two cents for every dollar. Um, And basically there's this movement in hip hop now where it's like you don't need to sign with the record labels. You could just do your own thing. So I agree with you. I mean, I see more rise of independent artists and same with uh, what we do too. We're like independent authors. So we're kind of like a remix to that. Would you ever ever sign with a publishing company? That's a good analogy. I don't know. It depends on the type of deal it is. And also it depends on the type of distribution that comes with it and what my alternatives are. So if, if it's like, you know, I, I did remember, I remember Googling this a while ago and it turns out that to, if you publish a paperback, the distribution company, like the publisher is going to keep like 93% of the revenue and you get like 7% as royalties, which is so stupid and ridiculous which is like so way too ridiculous, like way too ridiculous. Like I would be more interested in like a 70-30 deal where 70% is royalty and 30% would be like the printing costs plus your income as a distributor. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like two extremes. I do think that (laughs) self-publishing is the future and the present. Even for music and everything else, like all these middlemen... They're not adding nearly as much value as they were when the internet was not a thing. Right. These mid- middlemen have a machine set up where they could, you know, get you like they could get you booked for all these different interviews. They could, you know, make sure your album gets reviewed, etc. Yeah, but who's but making money? Like who's actually profiting for, from it? They are. You're making like six cents, five cents on the dollar. In other words, you're like working for the middleman. Yeah, and you have a boss in in that way where I'm not saying anything's wrong with having a boss, but a lot of these artists that think that they're working for themselves, they're not not really working for themselves. Yeah, they're they're working for the middleman. I think these middleman type people are going to zero. I do think that there will be more decentralized middleman quote-unquote middleman which will either not charge any money or the fee will be nominal like gumroad in a way charges like three percent and so instead of me making five cents on the dollar i make 97 cents on the dollar that's incredible i don't think people understand how much of a good deal that is yeah so things are changing I did see, I, I, I can see the value of a record label in the pre-internet world. 
where marketing had to be done by people and they had to print posters and create demand. But on the internet, like what, like everything is being done by the band or whatever, whoever is making the content. And these guys are essentially just earning money for not providing anything. Yeah, and with the record label, um, you also get enhanced quality in terms of the production because they have these armies of teams coming along. You can hire all of that, you know. For example, like, you can uh, you can hire all of that, or you could like do a fairer deal with these guys. Okay, for example, let's say you have no money to invest, so you could say deal with these teams and tell them that for producing my music, I will give you thirty percent of whatever revenue this music brings me. So this is a fair deal for you. Like you get seventy percent instead of say two cents. Well, have you heard of this rapper called Russ? I have not. So Russ is like he's like Mr. Do It Your All, where he'll rap. He knows how to do engineering. He knows how to do producing, make beats. So he knows how everything works in the uh, the process. That's kind of like an author who can like write, who can create his own covers, who can market his own books, etc. And Russ is like you know causing a lot of waves in the music industry right now because he is all about like you know being an independent artist. But it's kind of funny because he gets a lot of hate. Uh, and I think right now, since he's so different from what everyone else is doing, he's going to get hate for some time. But I think eventually more people are going to start seeing what he's saying. What he's really Mr. Why, why is he being hated? So he's being hated right now because they're like, oh, he's too cocky. Um, so? He's not a... He's a rapper. Well, he's supposed to be cocky. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like when you do that much... I think you kind of give yourself some right to be cocky, especially in that field. No, it's like but, it's, it's a persona. Like all these entertainers, like they act cocky to entertain. Like that's their it's their persona. You know what I mean? It, it was actually a trend on Twitter. I, I, I'm pretty sure you've probably seen it, but you didn't think much of it. But it, it just was a hashtag called like "fuck Russ," and a bunch of like people were just like hating on him. Um, I'll send you some interviews. Like every interview he'd go on, the people would be like, why does everyone hate you? You seem like such a good guy. And that's when he'd be like, oh, it's because I keep it real. Um, he also had this one stint where he was going against people who drank like lean. Have you ever heard of lean? No. It's, does it mean like um, not having as much like, you know, minimization? No. So lean is like this, like it, it's a drink that makes you feel buzzed. Oh. And he was basically going in on the new age rappers for promoting drugs and alcohol, all this stuff. Mm. And the rappers were like, man, this guy's corny. He's like such a goody two shoes. So in 2016, like he was getting a bunch of hate. And in the interview, he's just like, you know, I'm probably going to retire soon because I don't think it's mentally healthy to get so much hate. Um, I don't really know his stance nowadays, but it's unfortunate because in some ways, like he is a genius in terms of his craft. When you could do that much, like you could be considered a genius. I bet. Although, just don't read the stuff on the internet. That's how you can deal with the hate part. I don't know why he has to retire. That sounds like a poor excuse. No hate. I thought that was, <laughs> <laughs> you hating on my boy Russ? No, I thought that was kind of. I thought that was a little like mentally weak where you have a whole bunch of fans, like why do you 
care so much about like the negativity. I, I think nowadays, like if you're going to create any content online, someone is going to, to hate it. Someone is going yeah. to hate it. Yeah, and you also have to work on your thick skin as well. Agreed. I do think that not reading the bullshit is better for your brain. Do you read the mean comments? Not particularly. I don't spend that much time on the internet, for which is surprising for someone who has two businesses on the internet. So lately, I don't even read many comments. I feel like when I do, when I do, and I find like mean comments, I'll just block the guy. Like, I don't care. One of the times I remember you clapped back, I busted out laughing. Uh, oh man, what did you say? I don't know what you said, but the guy called you privileged. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you clap back. Oh yeah, I do that from time to time. <laughs> I just troll people. Like if it's too easy. It just randomly showed up and I started laughing. But lately I've just, I've just I just block. I, I don't care as much as I used to. So I just block these guys and move on. Like it's one of those things, you know, like if you are talking to say a hundred thousand people, one percent to five percent of them are going to be fucking crazy. They're going to be people who will interpret things in the least charitable way or completely misinterpret it in its entirety and then attack you on the basis of their misinterpretation. For example, if you say you should take a bath every day, there's going to be someone who says that, but what if you have a skin disease which kind of makes it difficult for you? <laughs> you you hate her. You, you get like people who lack reading <laughs> comprehension or just pick up some weird context and just say some absurd shit. And it is how it is. And then you have people who will outright... You have a lot of people. Like This is like a good 1-2% of people. And if you have like 200,000 followers, that's like 4,000 people. So... Uh, these people will, this small percentage of people is like outright jealous of you in the sense that they're just outright jealous. And if you say something they don't like or whatever, they will start attacking you. For example, if you say something about making your bed or, you know, just having a neat room, these people will outright say things like, you're like a cheap version of Jordan Peterson. Like, I like Jordan Peterson, so no offense there, but like, what? Like, there was no it wasn't like i didn't say anything wrong like you should like have a neat room if you can but these people have this weird vicious emotional reactions and that tends to stem from jealousy you know how people who are like broke as fuck like completely broke they see some rich guy who is a fat and their reaction is, hey, this guy's fat. Like, screw him. Lisi, I'm so much better than him because I'm not fat, even though I'm broke. It's mm -hmm. that type of reaction. Yeah, and it's the part of the brain that always wants to kind of, it's the suspicious part of the brain. Where I, I wrote this tweet recently, and someone asked me a pretty good question in regards to it. I said that two traditional generalizations that we make regarding attractive people, more specifically, they have a nice face is number one, we assume that uh, they're uh, trustworthy. And number two is when the person looks very good, sometimes we may assume that they're ditzy. And someone asked me a question what? on they're why a uh, ditzy, like let's say someone's too like, you know, good looking, they'll be like, others will be like, ah, this guy's just good looking, uh, but he's not smart. 
uh, all ah, looks and no okay, brains. Okay, okay. So like someone was like, yeah, and so someone's like, yo, why does the second one happen? Like, why is it that when we see someone good looking, a lot of the times we're like, oh yeah, this person's probably not smart though. They probably don't have much intellect. And one of the reasons why I said is because it's just this, um, this dynamic in the brain that's so subconscious at times where until you bring awareness to it, you won't know where it's the too good to be true uh, mindset. When mm. you're looking at someone who seems like they have it all figured out, like, ah, but what's the catch? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so when you so see that this good looking person, what are they hiding? Where are the skeletons? Yeah. <laughs> or, or yeah. When you see this, a good looking person is also smart. You're like, ah, well, uh, he probably, um, hits his cat or something. Or something yeah. yeah. You make up some scenario in your mind and it's a too good to be true mentality. I don't know if it's a real psychological phenomena, but if it's not, I'm coining it. We'll call it the Arman phenomenon. <laughs> the, the worst phenomenon to be named after. <laughs> but, but you probably see it. I mean, like you're talking about it in terms of like followers, which you may get like, oh yeah, yeah, but he got all these followers. But I mean, no, for example, probably not that perfect. Yeah, it's like, let, let's say, if you say that I accomplished something, you will have some people whose reaction is, that's only because you're privileged. And that reaction essentially tells you that they're jealous of you. Right. Why else would you have that reaction? Like, only out of jealousy. If you take, say, Trump, okay, I'm not the biggest fan of Trump, but have you seen this thing where people keep saying Trump got like a small loan of $2 million? Yep. Like this guy got a loan of $2 million and he turned it into a many billions of dollars. So that is something to be proud of. Like that is amazing. But people tend to focus on like the small loan and see he like they, they kind of interpret it as if they had these two million dollars they could have done the same thing which is outright bullshit because if they had two million dollars they would just waste it so it's just jealousy they're just jealous of this guy's success and that's why they're having this weird illogical negative reaction like i, I bet like for all the people complaining about trump's two million if i give you two million dollars of my money and you can't turn it into, say, 10 billion in, say, five or whatever years Trump took. What compensation can you give me? Will you give me like a kidney or something? And most of these guys will just turn it down because they they, they know they can't turn two million into many billions. It just, they can't do it. But they still like to feel that they can, which is why they're complaining about how Trump's success only comes from, say, having some money initially. It's like one of those situations, you know, like if I had access to this, I could have done it too. But why? So, but And the only reason I'm a failure is because I lacked whatever resources this guy has. When truly the reason they're a failure is because they're losers and they have this loser-ass mindset. And even if they had access to whatever they needed, they would still be a loser because they would not use it. Right. I mean, you got to be resourceful with what you have at the moment. Otherwise, I mean, what are you going to do? Like, I know a couple of black people who are from Africa. And these guys, like, from what I understand, I'm, I'm not like an expert on the culture in Africa or in the US. But the pe black people in Africa, 
they seem to not like black people in america because they think that these americans have like they're living in like the one of the best countries in the world and they have access to everything and they're still acting like they're being discriminated against and they have no whatever ability and systematic racism or whatever so it's a huge disconnect you know like if people can come from abroad and succeed why can't you you're a native i think one of the biggest mindsets to cultivate is you know in the us we call it the immigrants work ethic have you ever heard of that phrase i have not yeah so they'll be like oh that guy got the immigrant work ethic which basically means that the person's a hard worker and you know if you can't control other stuff you should at least be able to control your work ethic you can't always control your circumstances what's going on if someone calls you a mean name but you can always just keep showing up over and over again i think work ethic solves way more problems way more problems than people assume and a lot of problems are entirely solvable by work ethic and discipline people do not give it the credit it deserves they think it's entirely talent or entirely luck when working hard plays a huge role working hard and taking risks yeah i i had uh, this one buddy this was a couple of years back he started dating this um one girl who was super mopey i mean she was pretty hot but her attitude was so just mopey she was just like oh no no all these privileged people and uh, i don't get what i need to get i mean what's even the point the world is going to hell i'm like dude man i don't know how you can be around this person for so long cuz he was different he was a very ambitious kind of guy and i just recall that their personalities were so different cuz he focused on what he could control like the work ethic and that was just his saving factor where he wasn't he didn't really have anything else going for him at the time but he just would constantly just keep showing up so i respected that about him and by the way for anyone who's wondering the relationship did end i i do think that like you know if your personality is that off eventually it's other stuff can't make up for it agreed interesting though you know i think that for women being pretty is like a true privilege you know what i mean so you, like if if a girl is really really pretty that is like the true definition of privilege because her life is going to be much easier definitely i i also think it depends on certain fields too i were there did you ever see that one reddit post that like it's like this girl who's like apparently like a bombshell she's gorgeous and she's like talking about a day in her life and it seems so like uh, like i don't know for me personally like terrifying or like random people just keep coming up to her like throughout her day she has to just keep telling people sorry i'm not interested i'm not interested random guys just like touch her um uh, so it's like being rich it's like being rich you know yeah it's like a celebrity but like imagine like you're just trying to go to like from point a in your house to the grocery shop and so many people are just kind of coming towards you like trying trying to talk to you but in their in your intention you know what they want like they're trying to like hook up with you and each time you have to keep trying to be polite to say no 
And every now and then, let's say you say no in a rude way, mm. the other person may like yell at you, call you like a dumb bitch or something like that. And this Reddit post was so depressing. I'm like, man, like I actually never perceived that dark side of being pretty. Oh no, I know what you're talking about. Like a lot of these um, hot girls, they become bitchy or they act like bitches because they have to. Because people keep bothering them. And say if you date one of them, like you, you I've discovered that a lot of them are not actually bitchy. They just act bitchy because they get used to doing it so often. Because people keep hitting them up for no reason. Right. And there was this other phenomena I saw, Harsh, which I found, I was laughing like nonstop. And you may understand it. So like, I have a bunch of buddies that, you know, they're like, man, they were all like reporting back on their experiences. And they're like, man, you know, like whenever I'm flirting with like a really pretty girl, a lot of them, like, I think they're going to be rude and just turn me down in a very vicious way. But they're normally like pretty nice about it. But their grenade friend, do you know what grenade means? It's a phrase. It's it basically a means ugly bomb. friend. Like, oh, okay. But in the US, some people call it grenade. It's like, but their grenade friend are so freaking mean. Like they'll like say, man, you ain't shit. Like you don't need, you don't need to be flirting with people like us. And they thought that was so counterintuitive because mm. they thought like the grenade That's would be nicer. That's jealousy. No, but one thing that I've noticed is like with wealthy people, like, this one narrative that a lot of like, say, people who don't have money is like, oh, well, the wealthy are snobby. They're not good people. Some of the wealthiest people I've met are some of the nicest people that I've actually met. While some of the people that are complaining about the rich being mean are some of the most catty people I met. So I saw a similar dynamic. Did you ever notice something like that? Not particularly. I know a lot of rude or like not very friendly rich people and I know a lot of not very friendly poor people and the opposites as well. So I, I'm not I'm not convinced there's like a strong correlation between this, like being unfriendly and being poor and being friendly and being rich. I'm not convinced about that. But I do have like, I, I would say the grenade friend theory. My, my explanation to this would be that this less pretty girl is jealous of how many guys hit up the pretty friend she has which is why she becomes better like this. Yeah, there was this one time, I think I was 21 or something, and I was at a bar. I was actually throwing a party uh, for like my organization. And, you know, a bunch of people came through. And I remember seeing this really pretty girl at like the bar area. And I go up, we're talking. And she's with this like fat girl who's just kind of like looking at me in the stink face the whole time. And I'm trying to keep her in the conversation as well. The pretty girl is like really nice and like, you know, she's vibing and everything. And then like the other girl is just like, all right, uh, it was nice getting to know you. Like, we got to go now. I'm like, where are you going to go? Like, they're not even leaving the party. They're just, she's just kind of pulling her away. And I think it kind of does tie into what you're saying where it's like, I don't know if it's like a subconscious thing or what. You know, a good trick is to kind of talk to the ugly girl first. And that kind of makes it much easier. Or like the pretty girls do get more interested in you because that's something different. 
I like learned this- that the next year. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that the next year where I found out that like our organization, when we were throwing parties, the people that you wanted to make friends with was the one girl that like no one was getting that much love to, right? Like the typically a little chubby, uh, not that good looking versus the other sorority girls. But she normally had the most pull among the all the other sorority girls. So I would make friends with them and she would then bring the entire sorority. So good insight, man. That's actually something you're not going to like read in a book. It's from real world experience. Yeah. In fact, I learned it in a more businessy context before I applied it to dating. For example, like the way to reach out to someone like you normally would have difficulty reaching out to would be to reach out to their competitor and then reach out to them and then they're way more interested because then they get the feeling of beating the competitor. Right. Interesting. So then I applied the same thing to dating and it works. It works. How did we get here again? We were talking about something before. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about something about uh, privilege and I'm glad we did end up here because I think this is a good place to uh, end the podcast uh, because we're going to have another one in two weeks. Uh, How'd you enjoy today's episode? Great episode. I think this is a good start of the year for our series. It is. Man, our last episode was so long. I was actually Googling what's the longest podcast ever. And I think it was... I think what I saw was 30 hours or so. Damn, maybe in a couple of years, you might try to break that record. (laughs) (laughs) I could see us doing that. I think the thing that would be the toughest is like the hydration part and the hunger part. You can't do that with two people. Like you need like four people so that you can sleep in turns. You know what I mean? So one guy sleeps. So if you have like say four people in two different time zones, then... You could like take turns sleeping because you have to sleep. Right. I'm actually curious, the record that I did see, how many people were in that particular podcast? Hmm. What is the name of the podcast? What's the name? I just typed in like the world's longest podcast episode and you have to keep playing around with the keywords because it'll show, I think there's actually a podcast called the longest ever podcast episode oh, or something yeah. like that. Those guys like really ruin SEO, you know? Yeah, it's so annoying because you have to keep searching for it. But eventually I saw like 30 hours something. Podcast, wait, world's record longest podcast. So I'm Michael Russell, co-founder of UK Podcasters Community. And I'm thrilled to host a 36-hour podcast. 36 hours, okay. So yeah, this guy didn't sleep for 36 hours. That's crazy. One of these days, man, we'll see. How dope would it be if Unapologetic Truths has a world record? We could do it. We could do like 37 hours. Just to mess with him. Like if he was like 36 <laughs> hours, five minutes. With 36 <laughs> hours, six minutes. <laughs> like, are you familiar with this guy called Hafthor Bajornson? Uh-uh. He's like a powerlifter. And the previous deadlift record was 500 kg. And apparently the, these two guys, like Eddie Hall, who set the 500, 500 kg record, they don't like each other. So this guy set a new record for 501 kg <laughs> just to mess with this previous guy. 
<laughs> it'll just mess up the psyche of the other person because they're like, dang, like, what do we do? Do we redo this whole thing or what? Although, like, it, it needs to be mentioned that this guy's record at 501 kg, it has some serious questions because he did it in, like, not in, like, the most accredited facility or something. So he did it in his, like, home country, in his home gym. So it, it's it's more of a controversial world record. Some people just don't accept it. I don't, I, don't, I don't really know what the situation is. But I remember coming across it as a meme. So that's really funny. Mm. What we're thinking about doing, like hypothetically, let's say we do the 36-hour, that's equivalent to like a mental marathon. You know what a marathon is, right? Yes. 36 I, I, hours. What's the longest you've stayed awake? Oh, it's definitely been longer than 36 hours. Way uh, longer than 36 hours. Yeah. Like for me, like I'm pretty sure we could do it. The only thing is like the hardware issues where, uh, you know, afterwards we're like over here uh, getting it, it edited save. and all it that. It didn't save. <laughs> yeah. Your computer does not have enough memory, sir. I think for something like this, it would have to be like a Twitch stream or something, you know? So that it's live because we will need to have like people watching and giving us ideas of what to talk about so that we don't run out of stuff. No, I don't think well I don't think that would be a problem with us. I think we have this way where ideas always like naturally emerge. I th- I think no, I don't think I know. Like if we actually do set this as a goal, like in the future, of course, like the next couple of years, I'm like almost a hundred percent sure like we could do it. Because if you think about it, in the beginning of last episode, right before the episode started, we're like, let's make this the longest. And then boom, we just did it. So I, I think when me and you say something, we're going to do something like it's doable. It just depends on the like the time period we're doing it. Definitely, it is doable. In fact, I'm looking on the GuinnessWorldRecords.com website and I'm looking for the longest podcasts. And I don't see an entry so mm, that's even better that's yeah that's even better longest, that would be awesome i see one thing for longest audio only live stream and that is 52 hours long and this was in 2012 so like 10 years ago damn 2012 was 10 years ago Mm-hmm. and this Longest uninterrupted live webcast audio only was achieved by Nescafe 3U1 Ardra Arada, Turkey in Istanbul, Turkey. And the record was carried out by two famous male Turkish radio DJs called Klenk and Erdem. So yeah, it seems... I, I'm not sure which one is the legitimate one. Is it 36 hours or 52? 52 is like significantly more difficult. Yeah, significantly more difficult. But am I crazy if I think that we could still do 52? I don't know. Maybe. I'm, maybe. I'm pretty sure we can. Like, And I, I know I'm an optimist normally, but we like... We need some nootropics, like caffeine well, or something. Yeah, the main problem that I see is like, the hydration part and like, you know, um, but I don't think the creativity part would be an issue. And by the way, Harsh, for our last episode, uh, five hours, 30 minutes, people actually, there was a group of people that finished it all the way through. I'm curious if they would actually, I wonder if they'll finish a 52 hour episode all the way through. (laughs) 
I would be surprised. <laughs> yeah. Unless you know, someone I'm, is really committed. I mean, those are the 1,000 true fans. So if you're listening all the way up to this point, I thank you for being a 1,000 true hey, fan. If, you know, if we could know who's listening and if someone actually listens to like a 7, 10-hour podcast in one sitting... If we could know, I would like love to give them something for free, like like a free ebook or something. But we lack that option. Like if YouTube could have that feature, that would be really cool. We should do this thing where we'll say like somewhere in the end we'll say like this code word and comment on it. Uh, comment the, the code word, and actually, the no, then other people will see it. Other people will just tell other people, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, no, actually, that's a very good idea, and I wish that was an option because I do want to show some people love because they're watching it all the way through and if you're listening to this right now um thank you for listening for so long yeah thank you so much guys by the way arman i really need to get going so absolutely and thank you for making today's episode happen um and thank you guys for listening we appreciate you for joining unapologetic truths episode 13 and we will catch you next episode bye-bye